0: Thank you. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. My Story Living with Lupus podcast is officially trademarked, all rights reserved. Thank you for joining me for another episode of My Story Living with Lupus. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks, and I'm so glad that you could join me on this Wednesday. Hey, you guys, I received a notice regarding a live broadcast from the World Health Organization updating the entire world on what's going on with COVID-19, better known as the coronavirus. Here at My Story, Living with Lupus, it is our responsibility and duty to give you factual information from the leading authorities. There is a lot of misleading information that is being presented on social media at this time. We urge you to take the... the, excuse me, necessary precautions like you've always been doing. Stay tuned and up-to-date with the CDC and the World Health Organization. And at the mid-end, there is a remark about this country's leader stating... Um, a discriminatory statement about the COVID-19 virus. Do you believe that the United States leader is handling this epidemic or pandemic in an expedient measure? That's the best way I can put it. But stay tuned, listen, and become informed. And also, tune in this Friday for the hypertrophic lupus arithematosus series. Everyone, be careful.
1: to the Minister of Health yesterday, and also had a chance to speak to Secretary Pompeo uh, yesterday, and um, we have underlined the need for for solidarity, and I uh, remind all of us of the statement that the United States, especially Secretary Pompeo, uh, issued some uh, weeks ago, and we have discussed on how best that can be implemented, and as Mike said, some of the process, especially with with banking and so on. Uh, But in in emergency situations, uh, the uh, sanctions can be addressed. And this uh, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, already um, you know, agreed uh, from the U.S. side. And that's why we had the uh, statement. And we hope that we will have the needed uh, to fight this uh, enemy uh, together uh, at the same time I would like to use this opportunity to thank uh, the crown prince um, he uh, sent the second uh, round of uh, support to Iran the day before uh, yesterday uh, Two uh, uh, aircrafts chartered uh, shipping materials uh, needed and that's what uh, we're, we're calling for to for the whole world to uh, for the time i think we're in uh, the most important solution and fighting an enemy like virus this virus, dangerous virus is solidarity and uh,
2: we hope this uh, spirit will will uh, continue thank you very much and really sorry musa we'll try to take your second question next time and just to say that we all miss our geneva press corps so Speaking about, uh, let's go to Jamie. We miss Jamie as well. Jamie, please go ahead and ask your question. One question.
3: Uh, Can you you hear me, Derek? Yes, please go ahead. Okay, great. Hi, this is Jamie from Associated Press. Um, We're wondering um, why might the death rates across Europe be so variable? Um, Italy's death rate is at about 11%, and they will soon overtake Hubei province um, in terms of numbers of deaths while other countries like Germany, France, Spain and the UK have reported far lower death rates, closer to 1% to 2%. What might explain that discrepancy? Thanks. Hi, Jamie. I
4: almost miss you as well. uh, 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 It's a good question, and uh, there are a number of factors that might explain that. Uh, But certainly, one of them is testing. Uh, If you look at uh, Germany... Uh, and we had a, we had some very good communication with Germany today. They've had a very aggressive testing process. They've uh, they've tested and confirmed uh, over six thousand cases with just thirteen deaths. But that may reflect the fact that they're really aggressive in their testing strategy. Uh, so the number of tests and the number of confirmed cases may be detecting more mild cases as a proportion of all cases. That that's an important determination. The second uh, issue is the, the evolution, or the time of evolution in the outbreak. Um, what we do see is a pattern of long hospital admission. So Italy, being, uh, having experienced the first wave of major transmission much earlier than other European countries, is now experiencing those deaths because a lot of people reach a point where they can no longer be saved in the clinical system. So therefore the deaths occur sometimes two to three to four weeks after the infection starts so again it 's you have to look at where each country is in the epidemic cycle. Um, the other factor may be to do with the age profile of populations, uh, for example, Italy has a very o- a much older age profile and has a higher proportion of people in the very elderly category Uh, and in some ways italy has been a poster child for healthy uh, people living into old age and we've always asked ourselves the question you know why italians and people living on the mediterranean uh, are healthier and live longer lives and and uh, and, uh, but uh, unfortunately in this case having that older population may mean that the fatality rate appears higher uh, because of the actual age distribution of the of the population uh, underneath Uh, There may be technical reasons as well in terms of the ability to provide standard of care. We saw this in China, we saw this in Hubei. When you looked at the case fatalities inside Hubei and outside Hubei, uh, there were significant differences in case fatality. And Anyone who's ever worked in the front line of an emergency, when patient numbers begin to overwhelm, it becomes a simple factor of your ability to provide adequate care and react to every change in the patient's condition in an intensive care environment. So I think there are circumstances in which the standard of care cannot be maintained when patients are being overwhelmed and I point you to the tremendously courageous and brave physicians, nurses and intensivists in Italy who haven't been dealing with one or two patients in intensive care but for example in Northern Italy over 1200 patients in intensive care at the same time. It's an astonishing number. Uh, the fact that they're saving so many is, is a miracle in itself. So I, I, I think there are many factors, Jamie, uh, and they all play into the the actual numbers. Uh, Maria may offer more technical advice on that.
5: The only thing to add is is exactly where the virus is, is is circulating in each country, and so you have to look at the demographics of where those where it is circulating. In Korea, we had these clusters, these very large clusters. Um, related to a church and that the age distribution of those cases was, were much younger than what we're seeing in Northern Italy, for example. Uh, you may see outbreaks in long-term care facilities where the age is much higher. Um, and so it, it's important where those clusters are occurring and where you, you're capturing the, your cases from. But we do need to be very careful when we look at mortality rates and we compare mortality rates. It, it's, it's not right to compare them yet. What we need to do is find out why we're seeing differences and what that actually means in terms of our understanding of this virus and how it impacts different populations we've said previously that we need to we we need to be very careful when we compare uh, a calculation of the number of deaths over the number of cases that are reported per country and mike has outlined the reasons why that is difficult but we have not seen the way this virus will behave in other vulnerable populations we have not seen how this virus will behave if and when we see in, in vulnerable populations of high prevalence of HIV, for example, or malnutrition children, for example. And that's what we need to prepare for. Um, so every death is significant, regardless of where this takes place. And we need to ensure that all of the measures that we take are preventing transmission, because every step that we take there will prevent death.
4: A supplement here on the issue of severity. If you look at the case series that are produced and published from Korea, Almost uh, 20% of their deaths have occurred in people under 60. So the idea that this is purely a disease that causes death in, in very in older uh, people, we need to be you know very, very careful with. And physicians, again, in Italy will attest to this, and in Korea. This isn't just a disease of the elderly. There is no question that younger, uh, healthier people uh, experience a much overall less severe disease, but a significant number of otherwise healthy adults can develop a more severe form of the disease and that's why we need to be ever vigilant in ensuring that we observe everyone, even the mild cases, for any signs of clinical progression to a more serious disease.
2: Thank you very much. We go to next question that would be uh, Diego from Brazil. Diego, can you hear us? Uh,
6: yes, I can. Can you hear me?
2: Uh, yes, please go ahead.
1: Yes, uh, there's been a lot of speculation about uh, cases regarding children. So if you could please clarify what is the data right now about uh, the symptoms on children and how fast they can spread, the virus can spread on children.
2: Thank you, Diego.
5: So I, I can start with that. So. Um... Yes, we know that children are susceptible to infection. We know that children are infected with this virus. Um, But in terms of the reporting of cases across a large number of countries now where we have data, um, the number of cases of reported cases in children is lower than adults. Um, We know that children can have develop disease. Um, and the disease that they develop in terms of the signs and the symptoms are similar to what we're seeing in in adults, um, which include fever, which include dry cough, uh, which include fatigue and and muscle pain. Um, There are, overall, the majority of children that are infected will experience mild disease, but that is not universal. There's a recent study that came out in China that showed that a number of children have developed severe disease and critical disease, and in China, one child has died. And so, what we what we need to prepare for is the possibility that children can also experience severe disease. But the evidence so far is that children have mild disease, um, and only one death reported in China so far.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Doctor Van Kierkor. We will take one question from uh, from journalists who are, for some reason, unable to um, to get on the line. So. Uh, Here's Camilla Hodgson from Financial Times uh, asking is there a shortage of tests and or test processing centers in Europe? Is that a reason that more testing isn't being done in countries like the United Kingdom?
4: Um, I think countries in Europe have been scaling up their capacity to do testing uh, over the last number of weeks. Uh, There are different options for countries. One uh, is you know, lab testing kits, which do a small number of tests per kit. The other are uh, uh, automated machines that allow you to test a, a number of samples uh, at one time. And then there are high throughput machines that allow up to 5,000 samples to be processed per day. Uh, and many European countries are moving through to, to put in place those more high-throughput mechanisms to be able to test uh, more and more cases. So, yes, I think there's a scale-up going on in testing, but I don't believe that the ability to test has been the reason for the not testing. I don't think that's been the, ste- been the, 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 the limitation. <clears throat> I think it comes down to what the strategy of an individual country is. If you're going to make an attempt to detect every suspect case... And test every suspect case, then I believe countries in Europe do have the capacity to do that. The tough part is then when you get those cases, being able to identify contacts and follow those contacts and quarantine contacts, then you need to leverage a much larger public health response that comes in behind that lab testing allows you then to suppress the virus through those individual isolation mechanisms isolating individuals or quarantining contacts is about removing people who are potentially infectious from the community what in balance with that and in, in line with that the social distancing or physical distancing measures in a sense ask everybody to separate themselves from everybody else on the basis that we're not quite sure where the virus is a combination of those two allows you to really suppress the virus if you really focus on individual measures to try and take people who are known to have the virus or could have the virus out of the general population for a period of time and at the same time you create some physical separation at the population level those two combined can be very effective at suppressing uh, transmission of the virus in order for that strategy to work you must have the capacity to do more extensive lab testing as you really try to search for and identify all of those suspect cases. And countries are coming up with different strategies to meet the testing demands, and maybe Maria can explain a little more on what those strategies are.
5: Yeah, so there's there's three major areas in which countries are working on to increase their testing capacity. The first is the kits themselves that Mike has has described. Um, the sheer number of available tests and companies that are developing tests and countries that have developed tests is incredible, um, considering we're 12 weeks into this outbreak, uh, this pandemic. Um, the second area is increasing the number of labs that can actually run these tests. So in every country, there are national labs that can do PCR that they're building on a flu uh, national influenza system um, that has been in, in existence for decades. But increasing the number of labs that can actually run those tests is an important part of the strategy. Whether you're using public health labs or using private labs or academic labs, whatever it may be, the number of labs that can do those tests needs to be increased. And the third area is the number of people, the workforce, who are actually going to run these tests. So this three-pronged approach of being able to have more labs that can do these, um, run these assays, more people who can run this and have more tests available are really critical. We've also seen, and the DG gave a good example in Korea, um, where countries, not only in Korea, but countries are finding innovative ways to test people. So finding individuals, how can we run these tests? Um, We saw this drive-through system, for example, Um, but countries need to be creative in the way, use the fundamentals of public health in terms of tackling this virus, but think of innovative ways and creative ways in which you can find people that fit your transmission scenario.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, Let's go to next question, Helen Braswell, Helen.
5: Hi,
0: thanks for taking my question. I was hoping uh, you could give us some more information about the solidarity trial.
6: Could you please tell us what drugs have been prioritized?
4: Um, hi, Helen. Uh, Anna Maria Henao Restrepo will join us to, to give you the specifics uh, on the trial. But there, it's a multi it's a multi arm trial and countries are able to choose between Anyone, I think, or more of five therapeutics that are currently been evaluated, but it may be more. So Anna-Maria will speak to this and give you the detail.
6: Uh, good afternoon, Helen. It's is an adaptive design. Initially, we have five arms. The first arm is the standard of care, the usual care that is provided to the patients in the country. The second arm is rendesivir. The third arm is Lopinavir-Rotinavir. The fourth arm is lopinavir, rotinavir, with interferon, beta, and the fifth arm includes chloroquine. Uh, the good thing about the trial is, as Mike indicated, that the randomization could be adjusted to the drugs available in each individual hospital over time. The other good thing about the adaptive design is that we can include additional arms or drop arms as our global data safety monitoring committee advises we should do. Finally, Dr. Tedros mentioned that this is a very simple trial, and we think that it's very important that other research goes on that will contribute to our understanding of this disease. But this trial focuses on the key priority questions for public health. Does any of these drugs reduce the mortality? Does any of these drugs reduce the time a patient is in hospital? And whether or not the patients receiving any of the drugs needed ventilation or intensive care unit? Thank you very much, uh, Dr.
2: Um, if needed, we will provide the exact title of, uh, of uh, Dr. Uh, but now we will go uh, to next question to South Africa. We have uh, Stephen from HOT919. Stephen, can you hear us?
3: Yes, I can. Uh, thank you very much for taking my question. I was going to ask about the solidarity
2: sort of Stephen, Stephen, we don't hear you very well. Can you speak a little bit? I can.
3: I right. How's that? How's that? It's a little bit. I wanted to. uh, Yeah. Okay. Um. I wanted to ask. uh, We've seen some schizophrenic government activity. I have to say, uh, looking at uh, the way our government here in South Africa has responded, I have been fairly impressed as a journalist and the response that the government has given. Is an important factor for the government to be unified on this. Our opposition politicians have come out and said they're supporting government. We are seem to be on the same page. I don't know what sort of interaction the WHO has had with South Africa and maybe you are you know, you are the people at the top and you're not to the day to day interaction. But in terms of the communications of our South African response, I'd like to get an insight from you as to
4: repressions. Um Again, as, as the Director General has said many times, an all-of-government approach is uh, is 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 an absolutely underpins success in fighting any emergency. But in this particular case, all the more. So I think uh, uh, that has been the case in in in, in many countries, in, in, including South Africa. Uh, another point to make here is that African countries have been dealing with emergencies, climate disasters, natural disasters epidemics for a very long time. South Africa's had to deal with a, a terrible HIV epidemic over many, many decades. So the ability to create coherent responses to what are uh, biologic threats is is not easy for government because these are threats you can't see and sometimes can't quantify. So having been through that kind of a crisis already prepares government for that uh, leadership role when, when the time comes. Building trust with communities is tough at a time when uh, many citizens have lost faith in government and all around the world. This is not easy. Uh, this is both an opportunity for governments to rebuild trust with their citizens, to rebuild that confidence that's needed to manage adversity uh, and to reach out and create a non-partisan, all of government, all of society uh, approach to dealing with disease. But again, the idea here, and I, I say this with caution, many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, there are many countries in the world that have fragile health systems. That is correct, but they're not helpless. And I have worked with, with an, in, in African colleagues and in Africa for many, many years. And what I see is a story of resilience, uh, a story of coping and an ability to overcome adversity through communities by building on community intervention building on community acceptance. If we can match community participation with good governance, then I believe that Africa can succeed. It has demonstrated that time and time again. But it does require strong, united governance to deliver for citizens. And I think we're, we're seeing that in Africa, uh, and I hope we continue to do so.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Tedros, uh, as you can see, uh, has left. Uh... But I'm sure our our speakers will be able to answer one or two more questions. Uh, let's go to Emma Farge from Writers. Uh, Emma, can you hear us?
0: I can hear you. Hopefully, you can hear me. Um, I had a question about the strategy for the supply crunch. Do you think that the only way to the demand for equipment such as ventilators and PPEs is for non-medical factories to be retooled to make this sort of equipment?
4: And are you calling
0: for that on a large
4: scale? Thank you. Um, there are, uh, you, you are correct. There, there, there is a real pressure in the market for personal protective equipment, for essential medical supplies, for, for providing care uh, for people. Most countries are, are, are still in reasonable shape, but there are great uh, disruption and there's great distortion in the market, and many would characterize that as a market failure. Uh, we're working very, very closely with governments, and in particular with our colleagues in the United Nations system, with the, the World Food Programme, uh, who uh, have, uh, are working extremely closely with us. In fact, we have World Food Programme staff here with us. Uh, no better logistics organisation in the whole world in terms of supply chain management. We're working with UNICEF we're working with other agencies in order to maximize uh, our ability to access those materials on the global market we also have some fantastic support from from governments in trying to prioritize supplies for us so we can provide them to 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 all countries the most basic needs uh, china being the, the lead in driving that uh, approach of prioritizing Uh, our supply chains in order to do that. Uh, There is a scramble on the market and we do need order and discipline in that. Uh, And I do believe that uh, institutions like the European Union and others are trying very hard to bring that order and coherence to the process of procurement and ordering and prioritization. Uh, It's like any uh, rush. We've seen this in the supermarkets and the shops. If everybody rushes to to buy everything they think they need for the foreseeable future then many people lose out that is the same uh, if it's uh, if it's toilet roll or if it's uh, personal protective equipment but uh, you know we can afford maybe to run out of toilet roll but health workers can't afford to run out of ppe and it is a huge responsibility for governments around the world to ensure that not only their health workers not only their health workers but all health workers have a fair opportunity to access ppe That is a responsibility of industry, that is a responsibility of governments, that is a responsibility of the UN system. We're trying to do our bit, working very hard across the UN to make that an easy process for governments. Governments who wish to prioritize giving help to others can use WHO, use the UN platforms to do that. I know they're very busy and may not be able to do that themselves, but we would welcome any contributions donations to an international system to supply PPE to those most in need. And in addition, other essential supplies like oxygen concentrators and and the rest. In terms of, um, we've seen some positive moves. For example, some countries uh, in Asia are really looking at self-production of PPE. And we do again look and again there are some companies around the world part of our pandemic supply chain network who are actively working to license their production capacities to local producers for masks for ppe uh, in order to be able to produce that at local level that's a fantastic development to transfer technology license that so that local manufacturers can come into the game. Ventilators uh, and other sophisticated equipment is another scale of production and another scale of safety and uh, ISO standards that are needed to meet that. We have to be very, very careful in scaling up production of sophisticated technology like that. But countries like China and others have immense capacities for ramping up production and we're working with them to see how that can be achieved and with other large scale producers of such equipment.
5: Yeah, if I could supplement that. So in, in addition to, to everything that Mike said, it's important that every individual knows what their role is into ensuring that the supply that is needed is being used for the, in, in the most appropriate way. So, what is what it, and what countries are doing in terms of what is their strategy for dealing with mild patients? What is their strategy for dealing with with severe patients? Um, individuals need to know what their role is in terms of how they can prevent overburdening a health care a health system. For example, if you're feeling unwell, you know if you're feeling unwell, you generally stay home. You don't rush to a healthcare facility. You contact the, either the hotline number that is available in your country or you call your healthcare. A provider, and you, and you say, these are my symptoms, uh, do I need to come in? And in most cases, uh, you will not need to go in. You will not need. But if you do have the symptoms that we worry about for COVID-19, which include fever, which include dry cough, which include shortness of breath, then you will need to seek care. And so it's important that that process is in place in countries so, for, so people that they know where they can go and when they should go seek health care. It's about the rational use of masks. Um, We have provided guidance about using a medical mask in the community. And if you're not sick, you shouldn't be wearing a medical mask. But if you are, then you should. Those decisions that are being made on an individual level impact the global supply for all of these materials. So please know that each individual has a role to play in this global supply issue.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, Next question will go to, uh, and we will have two more questions, and then we will let you go. Uh, Next question will be uh, Kai Kuferschmidt. But before that, uh, uh, I just need to say what's Anna Maria' uh, title because it has been asked. Uh, So Anna Maria Henao, and I will spell the name A N A uh, Maria as M A R I A, Henao as H E N A O, uh, and Anna Maria is. Unit head for research and development blueprint at health emergencies program here at WHO. Uh, Kai Kuferschmidt. Thanks for taking my question. Um, so, maybe if I can just a really quick clarification from Anna Maria. So the fifth arm of the solidarity trial is just chloroquine or chloroquine plus something else. And then the question I wanted to ask. Um, you keep talking about testing, of course, and, and there's been a lot of discussion, but there also seems to be a problem with the supply of reagents for some of the testing kits. And I'm curious um, whether WHO is working on addressing that in some way, uh, or whether you have some thoughts on that. Okay, you are a very good friend of WHO, but I have to enforce the policy of one question. So uh... <laughs> It was
3: a question and a clarification. <laughs> okay, so please.
6: It's chloroquine alone, so we are going to test in some countries chloroquine and in some countries in drops chloroquine and we are looking into the equivalence between the two doses and um, we have an independent expert panel who help us with the prioritization process and this is how we arrive to this uh, selection. Over.
4: Um, on
6: the, the left side, we might
4: actually, Ana Maria, bring Mark to the table there. Uh, Mark Perkins uh, leads our 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 lab um uh, portfolio under uh, Maria's uh, coordination and there are lots of questions being asked about lab supplies and 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 all of that and again as Maria said there are different manufacturers producing tests on different platforms so there could be a shortage in one area and not in another so it's very hard to do a global evaluation we've seen for example on some of the high throughput systems in the last few weeks they haven't run out of the the, the testing reagents they've actually run out of of equipment and supplies to support the high throughput system so uh, it's very easy to extrapolate a single problem in a single testing system to the whole system Uh, but I will let uh, Mark uh, speak for himself our thanks to Mark and the team because they've worked really hard over the last number of weeks and within days of of, of, of this virus been sequenced we were working with scientists and, man- and collaborating centres and with manufacturers to produce highly qualified, validated tests that have actually been distributed to 120 countries. They're operating at a very high level of quality and quality assurance, uh, and we're very, very pleased at the way in which they have performed throughout the world over the last number of weeks. And we thank Mark, but we also thank all of those in the laboratory networks who've been working on this, all of the scientists, all of the manufacturers, all of the collaborating centres, and those who've worked to validate these tests in the fields. Uh, It's been a huge success. Uh, and something that we are proud of, and we continue then to work with others to make sure that they're able to scale up at the same level. So Mark, maybe a word or two on some of the issues around reagents, supplies, assays, concerns around this. Yes, uh, there have been
3: shortages of some of the materials, some of the ancillary materials, as Mike mentioned, used in PCR reactions, which are the most common way to diagnose uh, coronavirus. These are sometimes important chemistries that you can't find uh, any, any place else other than a diagnostic manufacturer. Some of the diagnostic manufacturing, a lot of it has been done in China, and with the outbreak in China, it uh, decimated the workforce, uh, at least made them unable to work and make some of those reagents and made it difficult to procure. The vast number of diagnostic companies are scaling up their own capacity to generate those reagents, and I think we'll get over that hump. There are more than 200 companies now working already declared, sometimes already finished working on diagnostics for coronavirus, and so we have a plethora of choices, and sorting out which ones work and which ones meet whose needs is really the next step for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was Mark Perkins, and I was trying to
2: find the exact title. Maybe can you just say the exact title for those who would like to to use I'm the lead of laboratory networks in uh, Infectious Hazard Management. Thank you very much, Mark. And uh, we will go to last question and we'll go to South China Morning Post. Do we have anyone from South China Morning Post? Hi, uh, yeah, can you hear me? Uh, hopefully Hello? we will hear you better. Try again. Hello? Yes. Hello. Yeah, great. Um, thanks so much for taking my question. Um, Dr. has mentioned The importance of international unity on this. And I just wondered whether anyone um, there at WHO had comments about the US President Donald Trump's continued usage of the um, the Chinese virus uh, as as recently as this morning um, to refer to COVID, given that there continue to be um, reports of racism and xenophobic attacks against ethnic Chinese people around the world. Um, So I just wondered whether you had any thoughts about
6: that kind of language.
2: Um, may may
4: hamper or distract from from the international community's um, ability to respond. Yeah. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think we've been very clear right since the beginning of this event that uh, viruses know uh, no borders and uh, they don't care uh, your ethnicity, the color of your skin, or how much money. You have in the banks, so uh it's it's really important that we uh, be careful uh, in the language we use, lest it lead to profiling of individuals uh, associated with the virus. This is just something we need to all avoid it, it it's easy uh you know in 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 situations to summarize or, or or to make comments that are not intended to do that but ultimately end up having that outcome. And uh, I'm sure anyone would regret profiling a virus uh, along uh, an ethnic uh, line. That's not something anybody would would want. Uh, We need solidarity. We need to work together. Uh, There are many uh, different uh, origins. I've said it before in these press conferences, the, the pandemic, of influenza in two thousand and nine originated in North America. We didn't call it the North American flu. Uh, so it's very important that we have the same approach when it comes to, to other other viruses uh, to avoid that. Uh, and uh, we ask for, for, for that to be the, the intent that, that, that everybody that everybody has. This is a time for solidarity, this is a time for facts, uh, this is a time to move forward together uh, to fight this virus together. There is no blame in this. Uh, All that we need now is to find the things we need to do to move forward quickly with speed, with certainty and to avoid any uh, indication uh, of uh, ethnic or other associations of this virus.
0: If you would like to appear on an episode of My Story Living with Lupus, you can contact us at mystorylivingwithlupus at gmail.com. Also visit us on our Instagram page and also our website, My Story Living with Lupus. on my story living with lupus podcast represents each person's individual experience by listening to this podcast or reading our blog you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. As always, consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. My Story Living with Lupus podcast is officially trademarked, all rights reserved.